Hello and welcome to the Dr. Lisa Clow podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Clow, and today we are going to hear from Dave Wyrick and his journey through this crazy life. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Hi. Good afternoon. Doing very well, thank you. And it's a beautiful summer day. Yes. Where are you going to start us on your journey? Well, let's see. I should start with saying I'm uh, just a little over 69 years old and uh, as a, now as a happily married gay man. Uh, I came out back in 1990, but my journey toward that point, I think, might be important to share. Because uh, a lot of folks say, well, how did you know you're gay? You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> gay is a choice. No, it isn't. We are who we are because we're made that way. Everybody chooses how to behave, yes. But when it comes to your basic identity, that's a gift from God. And it took me many years to realize that. But looking back on my life, I think in many ways I, I knew I was always different. People often would tease me. They'd call me um, names back then, that were queer or pansy. I remember in, in school, even in, in junior high school, the boys trying to make me prove that I was uh, masculine. They had stupid little masculine tests, masculinity tests. If you had to do things in a certain way to meet their approval, then you knew you were gay. And only, uh, and you never wore white socks. I mean, all these stupid things in the 60s <laughs> uh, that, uh, that people put you through. Uh, but the harassment was real. and. It, I, I enjoyed reading uh, Superman comic books as a, as a child and watching Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies, but not for the plots, <laughs> it was for the physiques that I was enjoying in, in the artwork and, and Johnny Weissmuller's body as a Tarzan character. So there were these clues, and then growing up, instead of enjoying some of the more traditional boy entertainment on TV, I always was more interested in watching somebody like Julia Childs and the cooking shows that were on television. You would have thought my parents got a clue, but they didn't. <laughs> and I grew up, uh, went on my way, harassed, uh, went off to college. Uh, again, though, I was, I was raised in a very strict religious family. Uh, evangelically conservative family and of course to be labeled a homosexual a queer uh, was condemned and uh, if that's what you were you were condemned by god uh, interpretation of various bible verses was quite literal uh, and uh, so i grew up with a lot of shameful and guilt feelings about what I was feeling, what I was thinking, what, what desires I, I felt in my, my body, in my heart, what I was, uh, the beauty of a, of a male body certainly attracted me far more than uh, looking at a female body. Uh, that's just, that was my journey. Uh, I got married, 
because that's uh, felt I'll back up a little bit. I was called into ministry uh, while I was in college, and I think while I was in college, that's when I. Our paths first crossed, actually. You were this little girl of a camper <laughs> at Adventure Camp. Yes, that I was, was a, in a 19... Camp counselor. That was ni- <laughs> my first year was 1980 at Adventure Camp. And mm. I, that was the summer of... Okay, that's uh, Summer of eighth grade. Yeah, that's right. Adventure Camp wasn't even going on. I was a full-time camp counselor in the United Methodist Church in Western Pennsylvania okay. for for four summers when I was in college. Yeah, loved it, uh, and it was during that experience at Jamonville when I felt a, a conversion experience, a born again experience. Now, when, okay. can I ask you about that? Because so you felt the condemnation from the church, yet you answered the call to be a minister. Well, because, yeah, that was sinful. That was a, that was like St. Paul in the Bible talks about having a thorn in his side, and I felt that these desires, of course, they were sinful desires. They were the things of the flesh that I had to fight. Um, and, of course, everybody has their own issues that they have to fight in order to make themselves good in God's eyes. I see. So you thought that was yeah. something that you could overcome. Right, right. Uh, and that was the whole tension that, that's just part of the, the spiritual journey if you're going to be a christian you have to behave this way and you can't have those thoughts and the flesh is evil that whole uh, splitting up of of life there's the spiritual side and the fleshly side yeah. and the fleshly side had to be resisted i became um quite a, a zealous christian and again looking back on it, realized that a, a great deal of my my zeal was probably, at least to some degree, uh, me working hard at repressing hmm. my sexual identity. Now, I felt the love of God, um, certainly, back in 19, that was 1971 when I had that born-again experience at Jamonville. Yeah. Uh, that was 1971, and so when I... I returned to um, college campus uh, full of excitement about what I had experienced uh, and a serious, real, meaningful prayer life began for me. Okay. I became involved with uh, a non-denominational uh, group of Christians on campus at Slippery Rock, but also was involved, I had already been involved with United Methodist Church in Slippery Rock. We had a a folk band that did uh, an alternative worship service on Sunday mornings with folk music and all. It was a great time. Um, I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And for the first time in my life, 1971-72, I experienced specific answers to prayer. Okay. Uh, it was very, for me, truly dramatic. I mean, I'm talking about... Uh, specific amounts of money being provided for me to attend uh, Christian conferences. Uh, and, and prayer became just a really a, a powerful aspect for me of, of falling in love with God. 
I had no problem with people. I think other people recognized that too and would bring me their prayer requests. We'd be walking down the hall between classes and some say, hey, I just heard out, hey, could we pray for blah, blah. And I said, we'd pull over into the corner right there in your busy hallway and just pray together. I mean, prayer became something as natural for me as breathing. Hmm. Um, in, the, in, in the meanwhile, always in, there was this interior struggle going on all the time. Uh, never discussed it with anybody. Uh, not for many years. So I went through college. Uh, during those years in college, uh, I had experienced a calling to go into ministry. I thought I was supposed to go into full-time Christian outdoor education. I looked at different seminaries. Uh, and then I... Uh, got engaged to a woman because that's if I'm going into ministry, I have to have a good wife with me, someone who's talented and can assist me in that. And I proposed uh, to her. She accepted. Uh, and uh, we went on our way. I was married in 1975 out in her home church in Hammond, Indiana. We went on to California to seminary. I went to school. She went to work. While out there, God shifted the gears from Christian outdoor education to pastoral ministry through a number of experiences out there. We came back to Pennsylvania in '78, and I pastor. I went. I came from a seminary education in Los Angeles, uh, where that struggle with sexual orientation did continue. By the way, I lived a few blocks away from. A traditional YMCA, the kind of place that the village people sang about. <laughs> I got it, yeah. <laughs> but um, never, never engaged in any activity. Uh, when still you had that urge, yeah, still had that urge. did you at one point when you got married? Did, was there anything like deep inside you that maybe said, "Don't do this"? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, there was, but uh, that was part of the evil. What do you mean uh, by that? By that was part of the, the the stuff I was supposed to suppress. I, uh, I see. Uh, that that wasn't meant to be, yeah. even though um, intimacy intimacy was certainly a challenge for me. We did have uh, eventually. We had two children, two beautiful daughters. We struggled in our relationship, nearly came to a divorce at one point uh, over stupid stuff. Uh, one of the things when you're, when you're hyper-controlling something that you don't like about yourself, uh, the whole bag of which we tend to call homo internalized homophobia, many people become control freaks. Hmm. And that was, that was what I did. Do you think that could be anybody who's controlling, trying to control anything about what they don't like about themselves, or do you think it's specific? It be, yeah, it could certainly be. Yeah. Um, so if she didn't do things the way I wanted things done, then we had, we had big arguments about it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that included child rearing. So we went to counseling. And then uh, st stuck it out, stayed together, uh, 
I guess it was a kind of detente, a kind of love, but not what you would call a real exciting, passionate love, but Mm -hmm. a love and respect for each other that continues to this day, in fact. But um, what 1988, I guess it was, I decided uh, I needed to go back to school because pastoral counseling was sort of letting me down. It wasn't really a good use of my skills. I was a counselor at heart um, to walk with people through their journeys and their struggles and try to help them find a way through. And started on a graduate degree at uh, IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And that didn't go far in the right direction that I wanted to go. Um, Ended up going to a Doctor of Ministry in Marriage and Family program down east in Philadelphia at what was then called Eastern Baptist Seminary. And that program involved both husband and wife involvement in some of the classwork and the coursework and the things we did back in our home parishes. Part of that process was the interviewing process to be accepted into the program. And they never disclosed to me what they saw, but the faculty at the program clearly saw a problem and they accepted me into the doctoral fellow program as long as Evelyn and I went to counseling. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Truly interesting. So we did that. I don't recall us gaining any great insights, but I guess they, 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 they detected the, the frailty of a relationship. Uh, I went through that program and steered it toward clinical practice. We uh, left parish ministry in 89 and moved down to Altoona area where I headed up an office of a Christian counseling service. It was just starting up here in Altoona. I was the point man as well as the primary counselor for the program and we, we drew it. But in that process, uh, I continued to learn and and reflect on human sexuality as a as an issue in counseling in relationships with couples in families and individuals uh, and myself and in 1989 i also joined a franciscan community because i was quite enthralled by saint francis of assisi who was an inspiration for my spiritual development uh, he was an idealist like me in a lot of ways, and his his way of practicing the faith uh, certainly uh, challenged and inspired me. Hmm. I joined an ecumenical Franciscan community. I made lifetime profession vows in 1990, that same weekend that our community was meeting. One of the members shared that he, a United Methodist minister also, shared with our little group that he was gay. And that was like a second spiritual rebirth for me. Uh, I liken my experience at Jamonville that, that one, that night in August as being hit on a, by a spiritual sledgehammer on my head. <laughs> it was just a powerful experience at the altar. Um, this was very nearly like that, as I realized, oh my, I need to deal with this. 
Yeah. And I literally spent hours talking with that fellow, Kim, who has since died. Um, what his, how he came to that point and how he knew. And I had to, I had to say something about it myself. I realized I had to get honest. And I believed then and I do, do believe now, God rewards honesty. You cannot have a healthy relationship without honesty with God or anybody around you. And I'd been living a lie for all this time. So I came out in 1990. Uh, I drove home from that uh, gathering. We, were, we met that year in Cleveland, Ohio. And I drove home to where my home parish was, or where I was pastoring in Armstrong County, north of Pittsburgh, uh, knowing I had to say something to Evelyn that mm. same day that I got home, or I probably would crawl back into the closet mm. and not say anything again. Uh, so that was a tough way, drive. <laughs> that was a tough drive for you, needless yeah, to was. say. It was. But I knew when I came out why the label gay is used because of the incredible sense of happiness. Wow. The relief about coming out was a huge load off my shoulders. But I knew this news would devastate her, my wife. And I stopped at a mutual friend's house who was very, uh, she's the wife of our family doctor actually, uh, stopped at their place and had a discussion with Denise about what I was about to do because I was trying to set up support for Evelyn um, so to would have somebody to turn to right away. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's an amazing thought and that moment when you were, you know, you were struggling and you were going to have to say your truth yeah. and you, you know, reached out to someone to be there for her. Yeah, and I, I, I tried to pull together resources for her as well as I knew, and I started my own learning experience, like a whole new learning curve, emotional, psychologically, and spiritually, about who I am, what I believe, uh, how to deal with this. We, of course, it was a very, very emotional day uh, when I did get home and tell her that. Our wedding anniversary was like three days away. That was another reason I knew I had to say something now or we would be back into the cycle of pretending. Yeah. Um, so we continued to live together, though. We had two, two little girls. Uh, we had to figure out what to do to be best for them. I had no place to go. I didn't want them to be homeless. I didn't want... It took steps. I didn't come out. Um, I was still a professional Christian counselor. I didn't know what was going to go on. But I had to throw myself at God's mercy to see what was going to happen. And piece by piece, um, I finally, we stayed together while she went back to school. Actually, she finished her master's in social work at Pitt. And we lived separate lives in the same house, took care of things, providing for the kids. And we did that for four years, and then I realized, I just can't keep doing this. Um, 
somewhere in there, in that four-year period, the counseling uh, ministry had to let me go. They didn't fire me. They just couldn't afford me. And that I had done some writing, and uh, that got back to the boss, who, I, without saying it, I don't think they liked my new liberal understanding of gay and straight people in the world that I had written about. And uh, plus, financially, they probably simply couldn't afford me. I, they had to maintain my salary as a United Methodist minister, which I was still a United Methodist minister during this time. Hmm. Um, then I knew that the church wouldn't accept me uh, if I came out to the church. An opportunity came up to pastor a couple little Presbyterian churches. I knew I had to do something. I was getting desperate. The counseling service was letting me go. I couldn't go back to the church. I didn't have a church home, a church family where I could be accepted. I had no support whatsoever, literally. So I went back screaming into the closet, hiding myself again. And once again, being duplicitous as I went into the Presbyterian church for a couple of years here in Altoona and pastored two churches in transition. I was a transitional minister of some sort. I had, they have some label for that. Uh, it's def definitely a temporary thing. Um, what happened with your community, your Franciscan community? They were very supportive. They have always been very supportive. That was my only community, my only sense of support and, and unconditional love was my Franciscan community. And there, it's a small community and it's scattered. It's dispersed all over the place. Uh, there were no other members in Pennsylvania. Or Ohio. I think there was a member up in New York City at the time. So it wasn't a physical, for me, it wasn't a physical connection as telephone calls and letters um, throughout that time. We only gather once a year, or at that time only had an, one annual meeting a year. So I uh, made sure to get to that and continue to deepen my faith with that community during this whole time. So when what year around what year was that, Dave? Was that ninety, ninety five? Nineteen ninety, I made the lifetime profession and came out to that community and to Evelyn and uh, I don't remember who else maybe I came out to at that point in time. Uh, I continued to to work with the adventure camping program for several years during the summers. Um, 93, I think it was, Ninety, somewhere 92, 93, where I, I left United Methodist Church, joined the United Presbyterian Church as this transitional minister. And I pastored these two wonderful parishes uh, for two years, just about two years, and then I realized I, I can't go on doing this. Uh, where we lived... Uh, our house was on a street that dead-ended on Route 22, which is a very busy highway. And I found myself sitting at the stop sign waiting to pull out uh, to go somewhere one day and thinking to myself, 
oh, how easy it would be to pull out in front of one of these semi-trucks zooming by. Is that the first time you had those thoughts? Oh, yeah, I think in my terms of struggling with my sexual identity, it's the one I remember most. I don't recall thinking suicidally. I remember hating myself, but I don't think I hated myself to the point of suicide so much back Mm -hmm. then, even as a kid for me. So is that Um, a turning point for you? Yeah, yeah. So when I was there, I realized I have to make a decision. I had the opportunity um, with my Franciscan community to go up to a special meeting up in Long Island, New York in the fall of 94. And uh, I, was, I decided to take a, a vacation week and go and visit some other members of my community up in New England and go to this meeting on Long Island. And uh, I wrote a letter to Evelyn to tell her I needed to make some decisions. I needed to go away and make some choices. And she interpreted that as a suicide note. I don't remember exactly what I said. Uh, I wasn't planning to kill myself on this trip. I needed to make a decision about staying any longer in this relationship because I couldn't handle it psychologically and, and be myself. Something had to give. Right. So I, just, I had to go off to sort that out. And when I came back, she did, I remember her saying she wasn't sure if she was going to see me coming back. Wow. She, she thought I was gone for good. I wouldn't do that to my children, especially, or to Evelyn. Cared for them too much. But we made a decision that that was the end of the relationship, the end of the marriage, the pretend marriage. She had finished her degree. And... Um, we educated the kids that we were going to divorce in the Christmas of 94 was our last Christmas together. They went off. She took the girls and went to visit her mom for Christmas break. And I stayed back, uh, and packed my stuff and found an apartment and moved out while they were gone. There is no way to measure that pain. It's tears. It's horrible. At that point, did you have anybody near, like location-wise, near you that were, you know, that you could talk to, go to? It did. At that point, I I knew a few gay guys in the area. Um, a couple actually were in a stable relationship. Um, piece of story I didn't fill in here. Starting actually back in 1990, I became a volunteer with the local AIDS intervention project. And also at that time, I volunteered and was trained to do HIV AIDS prevention education. I was, because of my status in the community as a clergy, uh, I was a member of the board of community advisors for this organization. So I got involved with that, uh, which is kind of the traditional gay and cause in, in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had got involved to help people who were living with HIV/AIDS. Uh, we um, were involved in a lot of places, a lot of, did a lot of good. While I was ministering, and finally when I came to decision to leave uh, the marriage, that involved also leaving 
ministry. I was I was cutting all ties. I was refusing to be duplicitous any longer. This hypocrisy was what was killing me. Mm-hmm. Um, God was taking care of me. Uh, yeah. I remember driving down the road uh, and just struggling with this sense: Is God still with me? Is you know what do I do? Who am I? And there was this epiphany, this experience, this moment when the sun broke through the clouds, and I just had this incredible, distinct feeling of God simply saying, David, I love you, um, and I will be, be with you. Uh, and so, okay, I don't understand what that means back then. That, that was what it was my response to it, but that happened either as I was moving into that apartment that I had found or somewhere shortly thereafter. Uh, so I, I moved out in Christmas in 94. I took a vacation. I took vacation time from the Presbyterian Church. I had accu- accumulated a couple weeks or more of vacation time. So I took that time. I sent them my letter of resignation. And I was hired by the Age Intervention Project as a wow. caseworker. So I was never unemployed. And that was one of the way, ways that God was telling you or gave you a sign that yeah. he was taking care of you. Yeah, really, truly. One of my mantras has always been since way back in 1971. One of the Bible verses that's, that jumped out at me right away was Romans 8.28. For all things, God works together for the good to those who love God. Um, all things work together for the good. When I saw that I, in a Bible study, I said, this can't be real. And I challenged God in a sense. I said, you know, this, surely, you're joking, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, no. And truly, it has always been borne out. God does transform what we think is a negative into a positive. God does make all things work together for the good to those who love him. And no matter what's happened, uh, one of my, uh, I had spiritual directors throughout as a Franciscan, so and usually monthly meetings with someone to discuss how, how things are going between me and God. And one of them one time said to me, David, you're a cat. You always land on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, that's not me. That's God. Wow. And it truly has always been the way. So, um, so 94, I became a, a targeted case manager, specialized training to work with people living with HIV AIDS. I had that job for five and a half years, um, helping the kids. Yeah, they went through a lot of hell, their own ways of coping with things. My younger daughter, for a while, struggled with it emotionally, became a cutter for a little while. She didn't want to talk with anybody, yeah. <laughs> She, but she remained so loyal to me. The older daughter had to struggle with her relationship dynamics between mother and father. She stuck closer to mom, but both of them have have always been my, my girls. And... Uh, my my loyal supporters to this day. And Evelyn uh, and I have a great relationship. We're friends. 
she went on into United Methodist Ministry. That's <laughs> a twist. Pennsylvania eventually herself. Um, wonderful woman. She's a wonderful woman. Well, me from knowing you, I met you when I was summer of eighth grade. I was going to, oh, yeah, I was going to Jamonville Adventure Camp, and I, I already knew you were someone that I could trust because my brother had been going to the camp, and he always came home and talked about things, and I always heard about Dave Wyrick, so I knew, <laughs> I knew, I was like, I know this guy is safe. I know I can just go oh, up and hug him you. and not worry about it. So um, I yeah. can, you know, I, the. God's love was definitely shining through you, his light. And, you know, when I think about, like, what you've said so far, you were condemned by people in the church, yet God's, your connection with God was so strong that you could feel his love through the bad things that people were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Because God's bigger than any institution, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, and I guess because of my experience growing up in that environment and then coming out from that environment, I've always had a sort of love-hate relationship with institutional Christianity, and apparently many people do. I mean, it's uh, books are being published now about it. Uh, in fact, I just bought one to read. Should I Remain a Christian is the title of the book. Hmm. Um, numbers show that Many, there's two kinds of churches developing, it seems, that are growing. There are churches that are growing that are clinging tightly to a very rigid, uh, judgmental expression of Christianity. And then there are churches that are genuinely concerned about living the gospel that Jesus called us all to live. And that that's a gospel that is built around two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. That's it. Um, and that, when I think back, you know, that's really what attracted me to St. Francis. He stepped out of the box. He was being nurtured by his father to become a successful middle-class textile salesman. <laughs> uh, a seller of cloth and very wealthy for his era. He, we would describe him as upper middle class. And he threw parties. He was a party animal. Everybody loved him for his parties. He threw money everywhere because he didn't care about it. It was daddy's money. It wasn't his. Um, and then he had a conversion experience that was so radical. Eventually his father condemned him and, uh, he literally stripped off his clothes in the town square and was embraced by the bishop. And he declared God to be his father and nobody else. He had to divorce one way of life in order to live another way of life. Now, I'm not running naked down the street, folks. Don't worry about that. I'm not that radical. <laughs> yeah, but, but would you say that that Franciscan community was like, your lifesaver, your lifeline? Yeah, oh, definitely. They definitely saved my life. So, literally. Um, that gave me the framework to rethink my beliefs. I had gone to seminary, two seminaries, okay? I had six 
years of postgraduate work under my belt um, of theology and saying, this is what you believe and why you believe it. And then I had to throw out so much of that. When I left the church that was the box of duplicity and hypocrisy for me, I joined, started attending, and then eventually joined the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church has been the most liberal, for me, uh, parish and uh, denomination that uh, now is very clearly a support of, of people on the fringe, so to speak, the people that others are kicking out or condemning. And the Episcopal Church welcomes all, and that uh, that gave me the space to rethink and work out my theology. Hmm. And uh, did you have to throw it all out, or were there? No, yeah, no, not all of it. No, obviously, but um, a great deal of it. I mean, I have over the years as I've continued to develop, I have had to shed a lot of my own pride and a lot of my own judgmentalism uh, that I that was very I was very comfortable with hmm. in a sense that uh, people were expecting me to be judgmental I was uh, a pastor of and uh, I was supposed to be the the yardstick to help people understand what's white what what is right and what's wrong which in and, itself uh, is kind of a uh strange way of thinking of a pastor <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it seems like that shouldn't be the norm like that shouldn't have been what you thought you needed to do i know yeah or what other people thought you should do that's yeah i mean it was pastoring country parishes um there may not have been a great deal of of sophistication about thinking what we believe um, and why we believe it. I mean, a lot of people are quick to say, this is what I believe, but not too many people give themselves the gift of time to think about why, why do I believe that? Hmm. Um, a lot of folks, when they stop and realize it, oh, I believe it's because that's the way we've always done it before. Right. <laughs> that's the way I was taught. But is that good enough? Um, it sounds like kind of when you went away to your quiet time to figure out what you, what your next step was going to be and what you know you maybe have been contemplating like why did what what do I believe I should do? Mm -hmm. Just taking that quiet time that people don't normally take these days. Yeah, that's still vitally important. Always will be. We need to spend time alone with God to contemplate. Um, prayer isn't all yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's sitting still and listening. Uh, you know, one of the most intimate times with God that I experienced adventure, at Adventure Camp are those times sitting up on the cliff or just sitting at the foot of that cross at Jamonville and looking out over the valley. Not talking, not singing, just sitting and looking, looking up at the sky. And God in nature has always 
been my healer mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. That's why I sit in this room amongst plants as I talk with you. <laughs> I've got the house full of And of your plants. gardens. Yeah, and uh, continue to. We have to stay in touch with the earth. I'm appalled at the way I, I watch and see how a lot of kids seem to be raised anymore just walking around with their cell phones. And if they're eating a snack or drinking a bottle of water or something as they're walking along, they don't think anything about throwing the wrapper or the bottle on the ground and just keep on walking. It's like totally disconnected from creation. It's sad. And speaking of kids... If we had somebody listening who's like struggling with their sexual identity and they don't know where to turn, what would you say like if they should do? I mean, that's a big that's a big ask from you. For what what's right? There's it's so different for them than it was for me. I mean, my goodness, the whole world is at their fingertips now. Um, as far as resources online, organizations they can connect with, uh, like the Trevor Project is one that focuses on helping uh, LGBTQI uh, teenagers, uh, especially. Um, I can't think, I didn't come to this this afternoon prepared to talk about resources like that, but get online and, and find some safe folks um human rights campaign is a legal organization based in washington dc is another name that comes to mind uh where they could contact through the internet and they could get passed along there are lgbtq support groups and agencies in all almost every metropolitan area of this country despite what the right-wing reactionaries are trying to do to destroy our identity and deny our identity these days they are a minority voice i just saw recently a, a another survey was done despite all of this this stuff going on the vast majority of americans support gay marriage uh, and just let people be who they are uh, yeah, I mean, be prepared. Uh, kids, um, too many kids are being kicked out. But I didn't tell you this piece when I did. Didn't come out to my family until 1994, just a couple of months before uh, Evelyn and I split up, and my family basically disowned me at that point. Mm. Uh, my parents moved away from Pennsylvania to get away from me. That's what they told me. Um, they moved to Florida. I found them. I think what year was it? I actually found them, 2001. I located them, and I was down there with someone, uh, a boyfriend I was living with at the time. We went down to Florida, and I found them. And uh, <laughs> I, I felt uh, the Jehovah Witnesses would have had a warmer welcome in that home than I did. Uh, I mean, when they denied me or denied I exist, I no pictures of me or my kids. They totally cut us off. My parents, it's, it's crazy. That is crazy. Uh, my my siblings, well, our family's always been kind of bizarre and dysfunctional <laughs> in a lot of ways, uh, sadly. But um, at least there's, there's communication with uh, one of my brothers and one of my sisters these days. And we commiserate about the way 
um, my parents acted toward me. My parents are still alive. They're still down in Florida, still breathing, still don't want me to communicate with them, so I don't. I so, tried many times, but they said, no, don't talk to us anymore, so I leave them alone. If you could give advice to the people on the other side, um, what can a person do when a family member or friend is coming out what can what can a person do to help them to um, support them? What would mean the most? To continue to love them, to be honest with your feelings. If you know when a, when a kid comes out to their parents, I'm sure there's a lot of grief over lost expectations or hopes and dreams that they thought this child was going to fulfill for them, and that's now all up in the air. But they're still your child. And they and it's okay to say I don't understand, and and to be real with the feelings, and but don't let the feelings dictate choices. Get help from others, other families. There's an organization called P Flag, Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gay uh, Kids. Uh, they have chapters all over the place. P Flag is also online, and lots of wonderful resources for families. Uh, God is still with you, too. This isn't a denial of God. Um, it might be uh, for the person coming out, they might not want to have anything to do with your church because of its perceived judgmentalism. But God isn't the church. And God is still with you, and he'll work it through with you if you let him. And that's the challenge. you got to let God do the work. <laughs> and that is I mean, that's so true and such awesome advice um, because God has brought you to a point now where you are happily married, living your best life. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, actually, after uh, uh, several years after Evelyn uh, and I did divorce, I... My first husband came up from Kentucky, and we sadly only had nine months together. He had AIDS already, and we only, he died from age-related causes. While we were down in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, where he was with me in the Franciscan community, and he passed away that weekend, actually. And again, my Franciscan family helped save me and, and helped because it was a long drive home from Little Rock with my my love as a box of ashes in the passenger seat. That mm -hmm. was in 1997. And so I went many years fishing and dating and wondering and so on. And then in, uh, online, on Facebook, uh, chatting with people and this, this, this character in Indonesia and I started chatting on Facebook and then chatting some more and then getting acquainted and he's Catholic and, it was an attractive fellow, and we started Skyping. So we'd see each other and talking, and then we started doing morning prayer together. So we prayed together. Again, prayer, see? Yep. Prayer. God's, <laughs> God's here in this midst of this. Uh, in 2013, we just had a session, a prayer session, and we're talking. And, and by the way, I met several of his family during the Skype sessions also, and they were accepting of him. 
and loving him and they they, they loved what they saw of me as well um, including his 80 year old mom which Aww. was wonderful um, and then I said I okay I need to one of my things on my bucket list is to fly around the world so while we're talking Yosef and I, I made plans to fly around the world to go visit him and we met in January of 2014 and felt good about one another he moved here in 2015 we went through the uh, uh, visa process, which took a long time, as uh, I proposed to him. So he's my fiance, and as a fiance uh, visa process, he got here in 2015, December. We were married in January of 2016. Been together ever since. We're going back for my third visit to Indonesia here, coming up in a few weeks. Wow. It's all. Yeah, so Yosef taught English there, so that that was helpful. The, yeah. <laughs> the communication challenge wasn't so good, so bad. I mean, and uh, so when I went first time, it was nice to have a built-in tour guide at <laughs> 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 my destination, and uh, we went about toured around the uh, Bali in, in Java. He lives on Java. His family's That's on fun. Java. So his mom died, and uh, we're back for a funeral mass just just before COVID. He had to go back himself once again to help take care of some things, and now we're going back again. The whole family will be together. There's a long process of mourning in that culture, and so the family will be together for another big funeral mass uh, next month, and get to see and his whole family ex has been supportive of us well he has one sister-in-law who's a very conservative roman catholic was it was challenged by a relationship but i think she's come around because the rest of the family did an intervention with her (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing that is so wonderful so you know we live in dangerous well as the chinese say interesting times and um there's more and more actual physical threats happening against uh, LGBTQ folk. Every year there are uh, transgendering uh, people murdered in this country. It's it's an untold statistic, sadly. Uh, but uh, if whatever your the person's situation, if you're listening to this uh, and you're in the process of deciding what to do and coming out, being honest with yourself, uh, work on getting some safe support before you really come all the way out there's too many homeless kids lgbtq kids on the streets who end up getting exploited by the drug industry the porn industry uh, and too many kids die and committing suicide the suicide rate among lgbtq kids is way too high i agree Uh, much higher than the average that's why i wanted to have you on my podcast and I really feel like your message is going to help people Dave and I'm going to get some resources from you that I can put in the show notes and put online on on my website because I really feel like you know your story was coming from the darkness to the light and uh you're living in the light now and I think I think that it's, your story is so inspiring, and oh, um, I, I'm honored to be your friend. Uh, 
Oh, I'm so honored to be your friend, Lisa. You're amazing. <laughs> I've seen you grow up and what you've become and what you do. You know. You know, you've always been the same person to me. It doesn't matter. It didn't matter when, you know, I found out that you were gay. I just was like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I need to write Dave a letter. <laughs> um, and, you know. Yeah. I, I just, I want this message to get out. I want to, you know, let people know that it's okay. And uh-huh. your life can be what you want it to be. Indeed you can. There's a wonderful story, a graphic novel called Heartstopper. And it's a, it's no, it's a series on Netflix that I encourage teens to watch too it takes it's among um and uh love simon another another series that's positive and encouraging and supportive that's on i think that one's on uh, amazon prime uh, it's they're beautiful stories that uh play up the positives of having friends that you can count on uh, no matter what the small how small that circle is uh you can get at least one person to stand with you it helps so much it does and i had a whole franciscan community at that time about 15 to 20 people who were supporting me even though they were all over the planet all over the country i mean they were they were still a connection a lifeline for me that helped me get through that all that all those different changes um and at times it feels like you're being crucified it isn't easy it's gonna hurt i you can't avoid the pain. Don't try to avoid the pain. I think it's where some people make a wrong choice and get stuck on alcohol or other drugs mm. to try to numb out that pain. But that pain is part of the growing process, and you'll come out the other side. Consider them labor pains because you're being born. Yeah. You're being born into something more beautiful and more grand and exciting than you ever thought possible. That's amazing. And for those who are heterosexual be the support that that person needs. Yeah. And it's not, it does, it's, it's, that's the best thing you can do. You just love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just practice simple respect. Yeah. Respect and love. Yeah. Well, sure. thank you so much, Dave. Um, like I said, we'll put some information in the show notes and make sure that, People can get the resources after they hear your story. And I want to have you back for um, another session because I want to hear more about that uh, 90 Day Fiance Visa. That's one of my favorite shows. And <laughs> I love your relationship and, and, and what you guys post on uh, Facebook. And I want to hear more about that. So I, I hope you'll come back and share with us some your love story. Okay, I'll have to drag Joseph into that then. Exactly. We'll have a we'll have both of you on. <laughs> All right, Lisa. All right. Love you, Dave. Thank you. Love you. Okay. Bye now. Bye.